Blog Talk Radio. Hi, and thanks for listening to the Big Time Talker podcast of the Blog Talk Radio Network, live and nationwide. I'm Burke Allen. Our number is 516-418-5635. 516-418-5635. The show is a service of our friends at SpeakerMatch.com, America's largest online virtual speakers bureau. If you're a speaker or if you're a meeting planner, find out more at SpeakerMatch.com. Today we're talking to a guest who is somewhat on the front line of the COVID-19 fight. He is a doctor and a friend. He's based in Silver Spring, Maryland. And uh, David Doman, clinical professor of medicine at George Washington University Medical Center, he wrote a great book several years ago called Heartbeat. We were uh, privileged to be a part of the promotion for that book. And he's also the host of the television show House Call that covers Maryland's healthcare system Welcome to Dr. David Doman to the Big Time Talker podcast. And David, I want to start by just making sure that uh, you and your family are staying safe and everybody's healthy. Thank you so much, Burke. It's, uh, they're uh, doing very well. And uh, thank you for the opportunity to serve as your guest. You're right in the middle of this thing, not only with you know your TV show that you've hosted for years where you talk to doctors and nurses and hospitals, insurance companies, all those folks that are involved, government agencies, local politicians in Maryland, but you're a practicing physician, and I wonder if we could start with you just giving me a, a you know a hundred foot view now of where you think we are as of this conversation in the fight against COVID nineteen. Well, I still think uh, we are uh, facing uh, an uphill battle, not only in terms of number of cases, but uh, dealing with the many uh, spin off ramifications of this uh, pandemic. Uh, certainly, the number of cases, unfortunately, continue to grow uh, nationally and locally. Um, the current data shows that uh, we're about at a million cases in uh, the USA, which, frankly, is horrifying when you realize that globally we're probably uh, about three to four million. Uh, the uh, number of fatalities in the USA as of today is about 54,000, uh, and uh, it looks like sometime later this week we will uh, exceed the number of fatalities experienced during the Vietnam War. That it's absolutely horrifying. Dr. David Doman is our guest. If you're just joining us, he's a practicing physician and clinical professor of medicine in the state of Maryland, which uh, you know was something of a, a hot spot. Um, your thoughts on how your your Republican governor there, Larry Hogan, has handled the crisis so far? He's been in the national news quite a bit. How's he doing from somebody who's on the inside? I think he's doing very well. Uh, certainly, he has, uh, with great justification, received a lot of positive uh, media coverage. Uh, uh, Governor Hogan, like all the governors uh, in our country, are facing a great challenge, not only with their statewide uh, health care uh, uh, needs to be met, uh, but they've run into a, um, a White House that has been uh, totally hamstrung in their effort. Uh, as many governors have t- said, both Democratic and Republican, uh, it's the Wild West out there. Uh, there is such a poor uh, White House-coordinated federal response that you actually have state governments competing against each other for uh, personal protective equipment for health care workers, which is absolutely outrageous. 
You know, there, there's so many questions about this and so much misinformation. Um, we're opening up our chat room on the Blog Talk Radio Network and the Big Time Talker podcast for folks to ask questions, and I'm going to try to, to pepper you with some of those during the, the better part of this conversation. Um, one of the, the first questions is uh, that, that I have is this, this story of the, the lack of personal protective equipment and, and just how important it really is to the average individual, you know, for the longest time it was, oh, you don't need a mask and you don't need that. And then it was, well, if you're going out, you got to have a mask. And now it seems to be sort of this mixed bag of messaging, just like it has been on so many other uh, cases uh, with, with COVID-19. So what's the story with personal protective equipment, not only for medical professionals, but for Joe and Jane America? Very good question. First of all, uh, one of the great challenges for the healthcare community internationally and certainly uh, within the USA uh, uh, with the CDC providing a lot of the advice has been that uh, we are literally learning on the fly about this virus. Uh, There is no uh, textbooks to look at. Uh, Medical journal articles have been literally um, written and published uh, contemporaneously with our dealing with this uh, pandemic. So uh, in fairness to the medical community and certainly the CDC, we're learning literally uh, on a daily basis. As for personal protective equipment, PPE, uh, certainly uh, it's very important that healthcare uh, workers uh, with their uh, exposure potentially to people that are symptomatic must wear complete personal protective equipment. And uh, I am, as you know, a, a practicing gastroenterologist and when we're doing uh, procedures uh, on symptomatic patients with any sort of uh, GI disorder, uh, our team will wear uh, not only a, a qualified mask, but they wear a, uh, a shield to protect our eyes. We wear uh, a cover over our hair. We wear a full gown. We wear shoe covers. Uh, we are totally, totally protected. Uh, that sort of extreme, though, which is the personal protective equipment whereby worn by healthcare care uh, uh, providers is really not practical or necessary uh, for uh, the general public when they're out and about. Uh, what would be reasonable precaution would be to wear a face mask. Uh, and uh, if you are going to go out in public, uh, use um, a hand uh, cleaner on a frequent basis. Some people are so anxious they're wearing gloves I'm not sure that really is necessary, uh, but certainly wearing, uh, uh, cleaning your hands frequently and not putting them to your uh, nose or mouth is, is certainly appropriate. As a doctor, what, what is your day look like now? Are you going into your office? Are you able to do elective surgeries? What, what is Dr. Doman's uh, typical day? Well, uh, I, I've been very fortunate uh, as a gastroenterologist because my particular specialty does lend itself to a lot of the uh, revisions we've had to do with uh, healthcare. Uh, we very nimbly, within frankly 24 hours, converted all of our uh, office hours for outpatients to uh, telemedicine. And there's some very elegant um, medicine-focused uh, platforms available where you can do uh, real-time video conferencing. And these platforms work on, a, on a, uh, a desktop, a laptop, an iPad, or even an iPhone. So it's very convenient. Uh, and uh, we have managed to convert uh, 
90% of my office hours now to telemedicine. Uh, the other 10% are patients who are sick and they need to come in so I can do a physical exam. That's the one thing, of course, we cannot do when we're doing a telemedicine conference. Uh, my days are, are still very busy. I, I arrive at my desk at 7.15. I do uh, telemedicine all morning, uh, one case after another. Uh, and then um, after a brief midday break, uh, I resume telemedicine all afternoon. And I uh, usually wrap things up with the uh, patients by 5. I'm busy then dictating all of my charts, so to speak, on our electronic medical record. Uh, as for doing um, endoscopic procedures, uh, the um, recommendation from the National GI Societies and certainly by all the individual state health departments has been that uh, surgeons and also gastroenterologists limit cases only to patients that are symptomatic. So if somebody comes in to see me and they are sick, they have abdominal pain, and I need to evaluate them, uh, I will do an upper endoscopy. Uh, if somebody is having a lower gastrointestinal bleed, I still will go ahead and do a colonoscopy. Uh, by contrast, if somebody is referred to me to have a routine screening colonoscopy uh, to be screened for colon cancer, those cases we're not booking at the current time, but instead we get everything set up logistically. And as of now, we're booking those patients in June, hoping that by then we will be allowed to book uh, so-called elective cases. So it's a mix and a match. Dr. David Doman is our guest today on the Big Time Talker podcast. And you touched on something that's interesting, and it's a little bit outside the realm of, of frankly, your or my expertise. But I do want to get your background and your thoughts on it. And that is, is you just mentioned how, you know, you're pushing off some elective surgeries. And, you know, that cascades across the healthcare system in America. Uh, and it affects hundreds of thousands, perhaps millions of people both from a health standpoint and then also from an economic standpoint. I was listening to a, a governor's uh, daily COVID-19 press conference earlier today where elective surgeries have been put off in his small, very rural state. And just by putting those healthcare workers back in the workforce, I think he said, if I have the number correct, over 11,000 medical professionals are, are out of work and unable to do those right now. And you multiply that across the country, it's a huge economic impact in the medical field. Now, you get outside medicine, and you look at a city like Las Vegas, which is completely and totally shut down, and all those service industry folks are, are out of work. Um, I guess in a broad sense, how do you balance out the health and well-being of Americans with the enormous economic impact and then psychological impact on Americans? That's a very broad question, and clearly it's it's a... Uh, an issue that we as a nation will have to resolve in the short term and the long term. Uh, certainly in the short term, uh, we need to be flexible with our patients uh, and realize that somebody who is sick uh, and if they're out of work uh, and they've unfortunately lost their health insurance, we need to work with them to try to still provide them quality accessible care uh, and uh, uh, in our office, we will do everything can we can to help out somebody if uh, uh, they simply can't afford uh, their their uh, procedures. Uh, the long-term, um, uh, uh, you know, five-mile up view of this issue is uh, we as a nation really are going to have to revisit uh, healthcare accessibility for each and every American. 
and, and I'm not necessarily advocating Medicare for all, uh, which has become a political issue, but certainly we need to, at the very least, um, uh, preserve, protect, and enhance the Affordable Care Act to uh, do everything we can as a nation to make sure that all Americans have uh, uh, reasonable access to quality health care. Very good. Dr. David Doman is our guest today. He is a clinical professor at uh, George Washington University Medical Center, also the host of the television show House Calls, and is a practicing physician in the state of Maryland, which has been pretty hard hit by COVID-19. All right, I'm going to open it up and, and grab a bunch of these questions that are pouring in, as I thought they would from our chat room. Matthew in Wisconsin wants to get your take on Dr. Fauci and Dr. Burks. Uh, and those two folks are, if, if you're not familiar with them, uh, as a listener, they're the uh, sort of the faces of the White House task force. So, do you first of all, do you know either of those folks because you live in the same metropolitan area? And if not, uh, you know, your take on, on the advice they're giving and, and their competence overall. I haven't had the opportunity to meet either uh, Dr. Uh, Fauci or Dr. Burks, but uh, I can tell you that there, uh, certainly I've known uh, of Dr. Fauci for decades. He's highly regarded uh, clinician, uh, researcher, and advocate uh, for health care uh, in, in, within our government. Uh, and uh, I can tell you that I f- both deeply respect what they're both doing, and at the same time I feel from a distance very sorry for them. Uh, they are doing everything they can, clearly behind the scenes, uh, to uh, do the right thing for our country. And it's clear they've been uh, um, met with a lot of resistance in the Oval Office. Uh, I'm sure the nation was horrified uh, by what happened uh, recently when uh, uh, President Trump was advocating using uh, Clorox or Lysol as a potential therapy for um, COVID-19. And I can only imagine the sort of um, uh, arguments that have been going on uh, behind closed doors of the White House. Just to be clear, from a medical perspective, what would you say about the use of disinfectants uh, internally? Uh, it is totally, totally to be avoided. There is uh, no evidence that it works, and there's an abundant amount of evidence that could be toxic to you. Uh, so for any of your uh, listeners, please do not use any sort of, of these cleaning agents as a uh, poor man's therapy for COVID-19. Fair enough. All right, Karen in Georgia, what's the status on the anti-malaria drug that seemed to be all the rage but is no longer being talked about in the press? Yes, well, uh, the age, uh, agent you're referring to is two. One is chloroquine, the other one is hydroxychloroquine. And uh, uh, the initial flurry of excitement was when uh, the uh, pandemic first hit uh, France. Uh, There was a paper published out of Paris that uh, uh, had altogether 28 patients. And uh, they uh, divided up uh, the uh, patient group into uh, one group received uh, an antimalarial hydroxychloroquine the second group received a, um, a uh, antibiotic that's commonly used for sinusitis called ZPAC, uh, also known as azithromycin. And then the third uh, group received both of those agents together, the antimalarial hydroxychloroquine plus ZPAC. And interestingly, all three groups appeared to respond, but the one that had the highest response rate was the combination group. 
so there was a flurry of interest in this, obviously. But, and this is a very big um, uh, but, and that is it was only 20 patients. And anyone who knows statistics will tell you a study group so small is not statistically valid. So uh, because so many people were desperate for any sort of therapy given this frightening virus, there was a flurry of excitement to say, well, we need to research this. Uh, and uh, uh, I was asked by a number of people what to do with this information. I said, well, I think if you're desperate and you're about to be hospitalized, uh, it's it's reasonable to try until we have more information available. Well, guess what? Now, a few months later, we do have more information. And a study uh, that was just published out of the VA hospital in the, in the U.S., involving over 300 patients, so it's a bigger statistical sample, showed not only no benefit to giving hydroxychloroquine, the antimalarial, but showed that the uh, uh, patients treated with the drug had a higher death rate. And the reason is that it's been known for decades that uh, about 1% of patients uh, may have what's called a prolonged QT interval. In other words, the electrical conduction in your heart is interfered with by this medication. And that's why uh, if you treat enough patients, you're going to begin to see that as a complication of the drug. So without any statistically valid evidence of benefit and a very real evidence that there may be a statistical risk, maybe 1% of patients may die from the drug, it would be foolhardy at this point to be uh, prescribing it. Dr. David Doman with background on COVID-19 and the anti-malarial drugs that uh, were all the rage in the beginning and now seem to have fallen out of favor. And one of those medicines, if I remember this right, Dr. Doman, was uh, used to treat lupus. And I'd, I'd read uh, in, in the newspaper that uh, folks who legitimately have lupus were having a tough time getting their prescriptions filled. So I guess that would be an unintended side effect of, of you know, the, that gang mentality of all trying to dive in and grab something that may be a quote-unquote miracle cure, you may be taking it away from the people that really need it. Yes, and that was another unfortunate spinoff of this, uh, that hydroxychloroquine is used not only to prevent and treat uh, um, malaria, but it is a day-to-day therapy for people uh, with lupus and also rheumatoid arthritis. And there was a a challenge for uh, patients getting these medications. Presumably now that, that challenge will be alleviated. Here's a question from Melody. She says, I live in central Utah in a very rural area. This seems to be much more of a problem in more densely populated big cities. Do we have anything really to worry about in small-town America? That's a great question. It's a great question, and the answer is yes. Hold on to your hat. Uh, This pandemic is going to be working its way across the United States. It's only a matter of time before it will hit your community. So all the precautions that have been emphasized, you need to embrace. Don't let your guard down, uh, because it could also be argued, because you are in a rural area, uh, when it does hit your community, with a, uh, uh, perhaps less uh, convenient access to a university medical center, uh, your community may be in big trouble. So please, please follow all the precautions. Don't let your guard down until uh, this, uh, the health department in your state says the coast is clear. So, you know, Melody makes a point that I think lots of people uh, are curious about. If, 
if you know they they already practice social distancing by the nature in which they live where they very rarely you know go into town to pick up groceries and and you know they live i, I don't know perhaps back in the mountains or or you know lakeside uh is there less of a risk than there is if you live in a uh, a place like Manhattan, for example, where people are right on top of one another and all the grocery stores, as you know, you spend a lot of time in New York City, as do I, are those tiny bodegas with the narrow aisles. And you couldn't get six feet uh, away from somebody if you tried. So is there something to that, though, if, if you live in a, a very sparsely populated area that you may be able to skate by on this thing? Or, or am I totally off base? I know. I, I think it's fair to say that proximity does raise your risk if somebody is nearby and, and they're coughing or sneezing or anything like that, that certainly can raise the risk. Having said that, uh, the reason this virus is so treacherous is that it can survive up to hours on a time on inert uh, surfaces like a countertop or a, uh, a metal. Uh, so if somebody is sick and they uh, uh, cough not in your presence, but let's say they cough in their hand, which is not the right thing to do, by the way, but many people do, and let's say that person who's coughed in their hand is out shopping, and now they go to your local supermarket in Utah, and they grab the uh, doorknob of the store, and they walk in. Well, guess what? Your listener is the next person to enter that store and grab that doorknob. Well, now we're off to the races, because they can then inadvertently put their hand to their face, and they can get sick. It uh, looks like Mark is listening in Savannah, Georgia. Oh, what a beautiful city. All right, Mark. Mark wants to know, uh, in your opinion, he says, Doctor, what can you tell me about – oh, it skipped out there for just a second. Oh, I, I see. What can you tell me about whether or not this virus, like most others, will die out when the weather warms up? Well, that certainly has been conjectured, but unfortunately, to date, it has not been confirmed uh, my own sense is that uh, uh, weather perhaps will contribute to a decline this summer. I think what's more likely is that the social distancing advocated by the CDC and Anthony Fauci uh, uh, and uh, uh, Dr. Blix, uh, all these social distancing uh, efforts will allow a um, significant decline in the virus over the summer but we're all very concerned that there will be a resurgence this autumn. And and how real is that concern, and how big would a resurgence be? Is this Are we talking about uh, something like an earthquake where, you know, the the secondary tremors are not nearly as bad but, but still can cause some fright? Or, frankly, Dr. Doman, do we just not know because this is such a new thing? I would say it, it's um, uh, more likely the latter. We, it's such a new thing, and we don't know. And there's so many aspects of this that the scientific community are learning on the fly. For example, uh, all of your uh, listeners are acquainted with the flu. Uh, sure. And uh, the trouble is that you get through one flu season, then uh, the following year, whatever vaccination you receive for that first year of flu is no longer protective. So you need to get an annual flu shot because the flu virus keeps on mutating. Well, there, we don't know whether the COVID-19 virus is capable of mutation as well. Uh, we don't know if the virus we're all dealing with now, uh, if and when there's a second resurgence this autumn, will be the same virus or it will have changed further. Uh, and that's important to know because, uh, as I mentioned with the flu vaccination, 
you need to update your vaccination annually. Uh, so uh, everyone has to simply hold on to their hat because we are going to be learning with this uh, as we go along. All right. Kim in Kansas has what I think is a pretty good extension question, and that is, if you get COVID-19 once, can you get it again? So is what you're saying, again, is we don't know because we don't know whether it will split off into uh, some other version of COVID-19. So we don't know if we might get it again or or am I wrong if you get it once? No, you're, are, you're are absolutely you right. We, we don't know. It has been conjectured that if you get the infection once and then you develop antibodies, that that will protect you. We don't know if that's correct. It's been conjectured. And even if it does protect you against the current version of the virus, will that protect you if there is a, um, a mutated virus, a new version of it, 2.0, if you want to call it, in a year or two? We don't know. Okay, this is Carl, and Carl wants to know why now would the United States government cut off funding to the World Health Organization? That seems like really bad timing. I, I couldn't agree more. Uh, it is horrifying that President Trump advocated that at a time when uh, there should be global cooperation, exchanging information about uh, uh, the clinical presentations of this virus, uh, cooperation about treatment options, uh, coordinating research opportunities. Uh, uh, to withdraw funding is the worst possible thing to do. Quite frankly, I think President Trump did that looking for a fall guy uh, to uh, cast blame on because clearly he's received a lot of blame about his delaying uh, a, a more coordinated uh, uh, White House response. And since he is always loath to accept responsibility, he has to blame somebody, so he chose the World Health Organization. But I couldn't uh, agree more with your listener. Uh, it is the wrong thing to do. Did the World Health Organization make mistakes on this that, uh, that they should be held accountable for? I think they did the very best they could under very difficult circumstances, literally learning as we go along on a real-time basis. Uh, I cannot fault them at all. Delana in South Carolina writes, Our neighbors in Georgia are already opening some of their businesses but the businesses seem odd to me. Places like hair salons, nail salons, and tattoo parlors. How in the world can you? <laughs> how in the world can you social distance in those kinds of businesses? Uh, you can't, well, can you, doctor? Well, it would be very difficult to do. Uh, and clearly, if there, if somebody's going to be going to get their hair cut, you would want both the uh, hairstylist and the customer to be wearing mask at the very least. But, you know, one of the growing challenges we're facing with here is the longer this self-quarantine nationally goes on, the more difficult it is on many levels. I mean, something as practical as somebody needs a haircut after a month or two. Uh, yeah. You know, I mean, uh, people who, um, uh, you, you know, have lost their employment. Uh, it's it, You know, it's easy to say shut down uh, and and don't go to work, but when you see growing food lines nationally, I I get that that is a dilemma. Uh, uh, so there is going to be a growing demand to open up society. The more months this goes on, on the other hand, though, if we open up prematurely, you're going to unintentionally not only perpetuate 
but actually uh, potentially escalate uh, this pandemic. And more people will die unnecessarily. Are some of these states that are opening now and opening these small businesses, do you think they're, they're jumping the gun some? You know, and I, I guess as a medical professional, you, you, know, you really want people to be healthy, but you see the other side of it. Are states like Georgia out in front of this a little bit too much? Would you have recommended they wait a little bit longer, or would you uh, go ahead and, and let people feed their families? Well, uh, I, I think the, uh, the answer is you, you can't uh, use – uh, gut instincts here. Uh, instead, what you need is, is data. And uh, it's already been articulated by the Center for Disease Control uh, that if, if a community wants to open up, it has to be done not as an abrupt light switch, but rather sequentially over the course of many weeks and months based on clear criteria. For example, has your community uh, already peaked uh, with the number of cases? Has there been a decline in not only cases, but also hospitalizations and deaths? Once you see that you're on a downward uh, um, uh, curve, then it's not unreasonable to say we can slowly begin to open up our society. Uh, But to do uh, an abrupt opening of everything across the board is very, very inappropriate. And, And by the way, to cut to the chase, many of your listeners are wondering, well, when will we be totally, totally back to normal? Well, can yeah. we stop with these quarantines, the wearing masks, etc.? Uh, I, I think realistically, we're looking at many months, maybe even a year before that happens. Uh, and uh, President Trump famously said, "Oh, we're going to make things normal by Easter Sunday." Uh, and I'll say, "Well, maybe he's right if we're talking Easter Sunday of 2021." Did you ever think in your lifetime you would see something like this happen in the United States of America where arguably the wealthiest and most powerful country in the world is doing the worst job with uh, with the pandemic? Did you ever see that uh, in your crystal ball, Dr. Doman? No, I did not. I mean, uh, uh, every doctor when they go to medical school learns about the 1918 Spanish flu uh, pandemic. And we were told there was a ver- abundant reason to expect that not if, but when, there would be another still undefined viral pandemic. Well, now it's happened. Uh, so I was not surprised by that. I'm horrified by it, but not surprised. But what I am horrified by is the, the current uh, lack of White House response. Uh, it's it's, it's uh, prompter uh, response six weeks earlier would have greatly short-circuited this whole mess. Dr. David Doman is in Silver Spring, Maryland, a suburb of Washington, D.C. You can find out more about him uh, by checking out his book, Heartbeat, available at Amazon.com. You can also Google his television show, House Calls, that covers the Maryland healthcare system. You gave us great common-sense advice. Dr. David Doman, I really appreciate you taking time to be on the show today. My pleasure, and everyone listening, be safe. That's Dr. David Doman, the host of House Calls on television. You can Google it and check it out online. I'm Burke Allen, broadcasting live from Washington, D.C., and this is the Big Time Talker podcast, powered by our friends at Speaker Match. Stay safe, stay healthy. Thanks for listening. Bye, everybody.
Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere playing at luckylandslots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18+ plus. terms and conditions apply. See website for details.